You may recall that during our last episode, I talked with Asim Prakash about the trade-offs attached to quote-unquote radical climate change activism. Tactics such as mass public mobilization, the use of civil disobedience, and a willingness to be put in jail. Think of Extinction Rebellion, Stop Oil, 350Africa.org, India Youth Climate Network, and others. Some, such as the members of the Stop Oil Group, have engaged in high-profile, pretty controversial acts, such as throwing of soup and paint at well-known paintings in museums. Asim spoke about these strategies and their trade-offs from a macro-level perspective. Well, I thought I needed to complement this perspective with that of a young Extinction Rebellion activist. Take Koos van Est, a 20-year-old local-level Extinction Rebellion activist in Rotterdam, in my original home country, the Netherlands. Listen to Koos's in-depth reflections on what Extinction Rebellion has learned since it started its activism about its role in outsider strategy activism, how it tries to amplify its effectiveness by collaborating with quote-unquote mainstream environmental groups, and how it aims to sustain the motivation and energy of activists for the kind of peak activism that Extinction Rebellion uses. Full disclosure, Koos is part of my extended Dutch family. I'm very proud to have this remarkable and thoughtful young person in my family. Hello, and welcome to NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijwijken, and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society manage change, invest in cutting-edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen effectiveness. I'm also a thought leader on these issues, including as co-author of the book Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, which is read by civil society leaders across the globe. If you are such a leader and want to look change right in the eye, this podcast is for you. Hello, everybody. This is Tosca at NGO Soul and Strategy. And today I'm recording from an unusual location in the Netherlands, my original home uh, country. And I'm going to talk with a really interesting and thoughtful young Extinction Rebellion climate change activist. So let me introduce it. In the last five years or so, we've seen the rise of often youth-led climate change activist networks that have chosen to engage in more, air quotes, radical forms of civic agitation, activism, nonviolent civil obedience. Examples are, of course, Extinction Rebellion, particularly in Europe and the UK, and the Sunrise Movement in the US, as well as groups like the Pan-African Climate Justice uh, Alliance, for instance, and many others. 
Some, such as Extinction Rebellion, and I'm quoting Wikipedia here, they quote, aim to instill a sense of urgency for preventing further climate breakdown. And so a number of activists in Extinction Rebellion and other similar movements accept that they will be arrested, will be imprisoned sometimes, and they accept uh, and they often use mass arrest tactics. Extinction Rebellion has been criticized by some as, air quotes, environmental fanatics who risk alienating thousands of potential supporters. Activists identifying with Extinction Rebellion and other similar movements have also defended causing property damage um, because they say sometimes that such tactics are sometimes necessary and that they are careful not to put any person at risk. One side in a current hot debate between the different forms of radical activism believe that, quote, a relatively small group of people can bring an escalation in provocative direct action to keep momentum going. But the other side thinks that, quote, the goodwill and moral high ground that we achieved should be used instead to build a much broader public movement. And that's the trade-offs that I would like to talk in today's um, uh, podcast. As part of our series of podcast episodes on how some international NGOs feel the need to rethink their campaigning strategy and tactics in order to be more effective, I've long been interested in this classical discussion on the trade-offs between engaging in high-profile, disruptive and contentious campaigning uh, techniques and the value of focusing instead on building a broader public platform for support of issues. And today, after this long introduction, I am interviewing Koos van Est, a 20-year-old activist at Extinction Rebellion in the Netherlands, my original home country. Koos is very involved primarily locally and occasionally indirectly nationally in the Netherlands. And she speaks today in our podcast episode to both those tactics, those strategies, and how Extinction Rebellion, from her perspective, thinks about these trade-offs that I just mentioned. And Coase also happens to be the daughter of my niece, and which makes this interview extra fun for me. So lastly, to say that in a complimentary podcast episode to this one, I will interview um, Asim Prakash and Nivas Dolsak, two academics based in the US who track climate change campaigner practices closely, to hear them out as well as about these same trade-offs. So look out for that episode in one of the upcoming uh, episodes. But now to you, Kos. You're so welcome. Hi. Uh, it's very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, excited. Uh, I am excited too. I'm, I'm just so jazzed about interviewing you. So listeners, let me give a brief bio. Kos is a student at Erasmus University College, which is based in Rotterdam in the Netherlands where she studies illustration as well as liberal arts and sciences with a major in humanities. And Coase has also been involved in Extinction Rebellion quite actively for the last year or so for about half a day per week. So Coase, let's start with a little bit of introduction. 
tell me how you came to be quite active in Extinction Rebellion. Why did you decide to do that? So um, it was actually one of my friends from high school who uh, at the end of high school got very involved with um, climate activism and also political, uh, she joined the political Green Party and then Extinction Rebellion in Utrecht. And then we both started studying in Rotterdam and she immediately got very active uh, within that local group. Um, and I was kind of watching from the sidelines and she was inviting me sometimes. And I think the first thing I joined was an art making day where I just like paint banners. And then immediately I felt the atmosphere was so nice. Like all the people were very open and welcoming. And um, it's just very nice to be with people who see the world in a similar way as you do and want to fight for the same cause as you do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let me jump with you into a couple of these. Um, um, you know, activism is not easy because while the activism can be about a single cause, in this case, how to um, fight climate change and promote the best possible um, mitigation against uh, climate change, there are lots of other interests and in uh, and stakes that we have to balance as well. So, as you know, um, environmental just uh, environmental activism is important, but so is environmental justice as well as equity concerns. And now more than ever, people who are lower in terms of socioeconomic class and status or who face discrimination are often hit harder by the very effects of climate change. So how, in your observation, does um, Extinction Rebellion try to both work on climate change action while also recognizing that there are justice elements to this? Um, I think in this conversation, it's interesting to introduce the term climate justice, um, because I think that term encompasses the idea that all of these struggles are connected. like. Um, the climate crisis, racism, sexism, um, any other forms of isms or discriminations or oppression, uh, they're all rooted in this in the same system. And therefore, you can't really fight one without fighting the others simultaneously. Um, so within Extinction Rebellion, uh, the Netherlands, we've introduced, uh, we have uh, Extinction Rebellion as a global movement has three demands. Um, um, but then we introduced uh, demand zero, which is the demand for climate justice. And we call it demand zero rather than demand four because it is the basis of all the other demands. It's what comes before all the other demands. Um, and Interesting. Demand zero, you call that, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's like the like the foundation you said for the other demands. Yeah, because because uh, the other demands are like tell the truth um, and let citizens decide um, and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. but you like you need climate ju climate justice. It's I guess it's simultaneously the base of what we want, but also the the main goal. Uh, the main goal, 
That yeah. makes sense. Yes, yes. Um, now, as you know very well, there have also been critiques over many years that environmental advocacy and activism, including that, by the way, um, undertaken by mainstream environmental groups, whether it's um, WWF or Greenpeace or any of the other big um, environmental NGOs, that they, for a long time, these groups have been dominated by white upper middle class liberals, and thus that environmental activism has often suffered from white elitism. Uh, that the environment, in other words, was mainly something that citizens cared about once most of their other needs, particularly their material needs, were met. Is that criticism justified in your observation? I think in certain ways it is. Um, also because activism, like to be able to do activism means you are in a like often means you're in a very privileged position because you are able to make the time like make the time for it and you have enough financial support and and uh people around you that support you probably to to be able to do that though in other cases activism can also be a kind of necess necessary for survival or feel as a ah. because you're being oppressed so there's like privileges and oppression going on at the same time, I guess. Um, um, wait, what was the question again? I'm losing. Oh, I'm, I'm actually going to um, uh, reshape my question now into a follow-up question. So the question was, if that is true, that there has been a history of, of um white upper-class liberals, basically, who were most active in all kinds of environmental uh, activism, not just on climate change. And I'm going talking decades ago, right? Some Actually, that criticism has already been in place for, for about 100 years in some ways. But if that is the case, Coase, um, how does Extinction Rebellion at the local level, where you're from, so familiar with the movement, how does it try to make it a more inclusive movement from the perspective of class um, as well as race and ethnicity? I think first and foremost, there's this culture of uh, really accepting or embracing where everyone is coming from and every individual is seen as very valuable in their own way and how they in however they may contrib contribute, like maybe someone just wants to cook the community dinners and that's amazing and another person wants to um, go into a lock-on and be arrested uh, or I don't know who really wants that, but like is, is ready to do that. Is willing uh, to accept that. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And all, all of those contributions are valuable and... Um, yeah, I think there's just this culture um, yeah. of of inclusion, uh, and we try to, um, yeah, be welcoming to everybody and be aware. And also, um, when something happens that's not that's like not inclusive or something, try to. Um, 
correct each other in that and learn from each other. And mm. it's also okay if you make mistakes or you get things wrong or you don't understand something as long as you're open to incorporate that feedback and change. Uh, okay. Does it ever lead, does this ever lead though, despite all these best in, intents, right, mm -hmm. of wanting to be intentionally inclusive, openness towards making mistakes and correcting those, et cetera. Does this ever, this particular issue, does this ever lead to, um, to um, conflict or tension or not really in your experience at the level of, of um, a city like the activism in Rotterdam as a city? Um, uh, I mean, I think there's not, not that much conflict. Perhaps sometimes things do uh, arise on a more personal level or, and of course we all, we are part of the system, right? With that has raised us all in certain ways and conditioned us socially, for example, um, there, the for example raised uh men differently from people raised as women like for for as an example mm -hmm. dynamics are still present in our group and the only thing we can do is be aware of them and try to uh you know tackle them and um subvert them um but you can't avoid that perhaps sometimes men will be more inclined to take up space in the room than women are, for, for instance. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, it's funny that you, or interesting that you say that because there is um, quite a bit of, of research over a couple of decades that um, uh, some uh, social movements are very, um, uh, there's a lot of machismo in it around kind of a cowboy mentality, especially when it comes to, to uh, radical activism. But let me let me move on. So um, we all know, of course, the 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 great example of uh, Greta Thunberg, the well-known Scandinavian climate change activists. And recently, um, I saw an article in which she decided to side with indigenous people in Scandinavia who were pushing back against the need for more wind farms as a way of contributing to renewable energy. So that makes campaigning then even more complicated, right? So on the one end, social mo movements like Extinction Rebellion, I imagine, obviously want to promote more renewable energy. But on the other hand, if indigenous peoples in certain localities say, we don't want wind farms, as an example, how does, in your, from your observation, how does uh, a movement like Extinction Rebellion try to balance those two concerns at the same time? Mm, um, I'm not sure how exactly Extinction Rebellion as a whole movement sees this because it's... Uh, it's it's a movement with just that's made from different individuals and each individual will probably have a different stance on this and mm -hmm. um, perhaps there might be people that say no but we need the wind farm so uh, we need to go for that and other people that say um no we need to listen to what indigenous people are saying from my personal perspective i would be more on that side and like side with Greta Thunberg, I guess, because um, I think indigenous peoples are um, 
essential also to uh, to to achieving climate justice and the knowledge that they have and the um, the yeah the the knowledge that they have about nature and the way they live together with it I, that's extremely valuable um, because in in a way I think we need to move towards that as a society like being more in connection with nature again um and also um i think the the change that needs to happen is not only uh that we need more renewable energy but also that we need to just cut down our production of useless stuff like we just need to stop growing um like this mm -hmm. idea that we should just uh, all the energy that we're using now and that we're getting out of fossil fuels that we should just replace that with wind and sun and then all will be fine and we can just keep growing um as an economy or whatever that is um i think that's something to be critical of because this growth is just um not feasible like there's we have limited resources and I think we should um, just also produce less and use less energy. And I think, yeah, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I also want to uh, talk with you, Coase, about um, insider within campaigning. Campaigners and activists can choose to use what we call insider strategies or out side of strategies right so just to i know you know what that means let me just explain that to my audience um insider strategies we're talking about citizen activists who decide that they want to try to influence formal decision makers so whether that is governments or whether it is multinational corporations or you name it that they want to influence those by trying to be with them in the at the negotiation table during formal decision-making moments, for instance, when we make new policies or new treaties or rules, etc., while other activists push from the outside through sometimes high-profile public action and mass mobilization. Of course, Extinction Rebellion, tell me if I'm wrong, Coase, by the way, sees that it wants to be most present on the outsider strategy um, side. I'm curious, Coase, whether at the local level um, that you're exposed to, um, whether there's ever discussions about what is the value of outsider strategies and what's the value of insider strategies? And do we ever as a local movement need to try to also apply insider strategies? What do you think? Um. I think as Extinction Rebellion, um, at least in Rotterdam, um, we, uh, I mean, of course, we are mainly focused on uh, tactics uh, outside of the system. Um, so, for instance, civil disobedience. Um, but we also have a political strategy and change circle. Um, and a circle just means working group. Um, because Extinction Rebellion is structured in a sociocratic way, and then each uh, each circle has like a specific task and domain. So there's this one circle, political strategy and change, 
and they actually speak a lot with the local politicians and uh, do a lot of lobbying, um, like come up with petitions. Um, so there is actually stuff going on. There's like a connection to within the system ways as well. And I think in general, there's a um, pretty, uh, there's, there's this idea within the movement that, um, that we need both and we need all different kinds of tactics. So um, you can do civil disobedience, but without uh, the people within the system also advocating for change, um, it doesn't, it, like nothing's going to change. But if you have only people advocating within the system, um, they will probably just be ignored without pressure from outside. Hmm. Example is another group that I'm a part of, Occupy EUR, um, where we occupy the university and uh, demand a better university. And first and foremost, that they cut ties with the fossil fuel industry. Um, uh-huh. For many, many years, uh, academics within the university um, have have advocated for, um, for this change, for this um, making the university more sustainable and um, and cutting ties and stuff, but they were just always ignored. And now um, the universe. Now since we have been doing these occupations, the university has been much more willing to at least listen mm-hmm. to them, um, even though they still have not actually implemented any of the demands that we have. I see. So you see a, a certain kind of um, a beginning of an opening up, and you're definitely saying that uh, Extinction Rebellion also has both wants to use both insider and outsider strategies. That's a uh, that's very helpful to know. Um, I'm curious um, to what extent uh, at the local level, coast do you see Extinction Rebellion as a social movement ally with formal NGOs and nonprofits? Does that happen a lot? What's Extinction Rebellion's stance on that? Mm, I think um, one of the, uh, this is uh, not on a local level, but more national level, because I think most of these collaborations with um, NGOs um, happen on a national level. I think a, a nice example is the Schiphol action back in November, which was a collaborated effort uh, effort between Greenpeace and Extinction Rebellion. Um, and I think that worked out really well because um, you just have like so many more people we can, you can reach if you if you mobilize both through like Greenpeace is mobilizing and XR is mobilizing. I guess XR was more doing the mobilizing part because we are a grassroots movement and have more structures for that in Greenpeace was more um uh, i think greenpeace the fact that greenpeace was with us helped maybe to get more media attention um because they're such a big name yes um, yes it's a good point yeah so and another group we work together with which i'm actually not sure if they're like an ngo but they are more uh a bit Within the system, maybe it's milieu defensey. Ah, right. In so in, in English, that would be environmental defense. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's an organization that 
also or that organizes demonstrations, but not so much civil disobedience. Um, but we have organized demonstrations with them. Um, they also do more the petition kind of stuff. Um, ah, right. Um, yeah. But we we do collaborate with them. And I think that's valuable also with the um, relating to the point that we just made that you need both this within and uh, within the system action and outside of the system pressure. Right, exactly. Yeah, I think that's very essential. Um, as we're slowly getting towards the end of our interview, I, there is at least another question I want to ask before we get there. And that is, there are some analysts um, who study social movements and particularly those that engage in more civil disobedience and quote unquote radical activism, they say that that type of um, activism comes in spurts, comes in peaks, and then it dies down because it, it's difficult to maintain that on a long-term basis. What do you think about that statement? Both, mm -hmm. let me, uh, uh, sorry to interrupt you, Coast. let me just specify is that something uh, both at the organizational level and for you as an individual activist? I think uh, first individually, um, of course, activism takes up a lot of energy. Um, and it's actually now for the first time. Um, I'm, I've now been uh, really active within the organization since September since the start of the academic year um, and I can now tell at the end of the academic year um, that I'm get, getting a bit tired of the role that I'm in right now within the movement um, because I'm I'm a general secretary and I have to uh, write notes and stuff and just do like work that is actually kind of boring uh, like when you join an activist organization, you think like cool, radical action. And there's <laughs> of course that, but then the org actually most of it, it's like organizing. It's just yeah. a lot of texting and doing and um, or yeah. Anyway. Um, and I think I need a little break from that specific stuff I'm doing right now. But then again, I am excited to, um get involved with other activities within the movement mm. i think it's also a very personal thing um but um i can also see that people kind of are very active for a while maybe a year or a year and a half or a few months and then they might be a bit less active and then they might come back or they might not so there is actually kind of this this um replacement of old people with new people again and I think therefore it's really important that you also transfer the skills that you learn through your activism to others uh, to yeah. people and I think um, also one of our main kind of principles is that no one should have a mon monopoly on a certain uh, knowledge like no one should be in a position too long um, because then they will acquire all the knowledge and this the movement will become dependent on them them to do that thing. Um, so in general, um, we just try to um, 
to change positions so everyone is learning and people are replaceable um so people can also step out when they need to and regenerate mm-hmm. uh, and in terms of regeneration we try to uh, there is also a specific regeneration circle um so they organize fun social events and after actions they will organize debriefs so people can share their emotions and process um so there is this culture of well-being as well also at an action there are always well-being people present whose specific task is to look out for um everyone's well-being mm-hmm. um so yeah. i think the movement is very aware of how taxing activism can be and we try to take care of each other as much as possible um but yeah it is not strange i think that people might want to take a break every once in a while um, yeah no exactly but it's very good that um your local exchange rebellion has um that vehicle of as of uh, regeneration uh, circles with the focus on well-being etc to um to help people maintain uh, stamina well coast um i guess we're coming to the end because our time is almost up so First of all, two questions. Where can people find out more about you as Coast and your part of Extinction Rebellion Rotterdam? Um, yeah, so for connecting with me, um, people can follow my Instagram, which will be in the show notes. Um, yeah. And um, to, to see what's happening with Extinction Rebellion, uh, the Netherlands and Extinction Rebellion Rotterdam, we also have Instagram and Twitter accounts, uh, which I'm sure can also be put into the show notes. And yes, we will do that. Yeah, then you can stay up to date what's happening. Okay, that sounds very good. Well, I want to thank you for sharing um, your experience and also your observations and your perspectives. It's really valuable to hear directly from a climate change activist in Extinction Rebellion on the ground about how um, the social movement that you're uh, such a part of, how it tries to balance all these uh, different needs and interests and um, and um, yeah, these, these, these interests. It's, it's a very complicated affair. So thank you so much for your time, Kos, and uh, for your insights. Thank you, listeners. Also, if you found this podcast uh, stimulating, then be sure to check out other episodes of my podcast that focus on campaigning strategies and tactics, such as episode 18 with Paul O'Brien, formerly senior leader at Oxfam America and currently CEO of Amnesty USA, as well as episode 57, where we talk about shifts from transnational advo- uh, advocacy to transcalar activism. And you can find those episodes not just on my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org with the number five, but also on my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my email list and you'll always be the first to know when we air a new episode. And with that, this is Tosca, and I look forward to spending time with you on NGO Soul and Strategy next time. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you valued the content, 
please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so that other leaders of social change organizations can find it too. And if you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find blog posts, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about my co-authored book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs. If you sign up for my email list, you will receive a free sneak peek at the book. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org or contact me through my website and follow me on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Till we talk again at NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye.